Well, tonight, as we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we pick it up from where David has had that great sin where he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife, and he tried to cover it up, and that didn't work so well. And so Uriah was ultimately killed under the direction of David, quite stealthy-like through Joab, the commander, where he was killed in combat, where it looked like an accident, but in fact it was deliberate. And other soldiers died as well in that campaign to cover up David's sin. So then God sent Nathan the prophet to David to confront him on it. He was confronted. This was our whole topical study Saturday night. David received the correction. He confessed his sin. He was cleansed of his sin. And then he found the great comfort of grace where they lost the child that was conceived through adultery. David and Bathsheba did. But then they had another child given to them whom the Lord loved, which was Solomon. And that's kind of a happy ending to a rather sad part of, a very sad part of David's life. And we pick it up in chapter 13 tonight. And as we come to chapter 13, the book takes on a whole new type of flow. Because back in chapter 12, well, actually in chapter 11, David said when Uriah was killed, in a sense condemning himself, that the sword devours one as well as another. And then when the Lord confronted him through Nathan, it was said through Nathan the prophet on behalf of the Lord, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and done this to Uriah and with Bathsheba. So there's going to be violence in David's house as a consequence of what he did having Uriah killed in battle, basically murdered, and that's what happened. So there's consequence. And as we pick it up in chapter 13 tonight, now we get to the place where David's a little bit older. His adult kids are all positioning and posturing for power, and it really turns into some difficult stuff. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 13 tonight, and we read this. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Quick footnote, Absalom is the first prince in line to be king. Um, and no, Amnon is the first prince in line to be king. Absalom would be third in line to be king on the princes. If you recall, we saw about David as multiple wives and the multiple sons. They would be uh, one and three in the order to what would seem to be to be the uh, princes, the princes who would be on deck to reign after David's decease. And these, that's important to the story. So verse two, Ammon was so distressed over his sister Tamar, his half-sister Tamar, that he became sick for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Ammon to do anything to her. But Ammon had a friend whose name was Jonah, Jonadab, the son of Shimea. That's David's brother. So that's brother number three of David. We read about him in First Samuel, he was one of the three rejected by the Lord before Samuel the prophet, when Samuel the prophet went to David's house to anoint David to be king. He's actually listed as the third son of Jesse that was rejected. So the third son rejected by the Lord, this is his son, and so this would be the nephew of David and cousin to all these other guys. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? And Abdon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Then Abdon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Abdon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. 
And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. And then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him. But he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. And they all went out for him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made, brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. And now when she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And where could I take my shame? And as for you, you'd be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her to lay with her. So he obviously, he raped her. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love which, which he had loved her. And Abner, uh, Amnon, and Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she, she said to him, No, indeed, this evil sent me away is worse than the other thing you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now she had on a robe of many colors for the king's virgins, daughters, wore such apparel. And his servants put her out and bolted the door behind her. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand over her head and went away crying bitterly. And absent her brother said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of these things, he was very angry. And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons, and then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, uh, your, your servant has sheep shears, and please let the king and the servants go with your servant. But the king, that is David, said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be burdened to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom commanded his servants, saying, Watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Abnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose. Each one got on his mule and they fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. So the king arose, tore his garment, lay on the ground, and all of his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take the things to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes, looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. As your servant said, so it is. And so it was, as soon as he finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, 
and they lifted up their voice and wept, and the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahama, the son of Imahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. This chapter encompasses five years. Verse 23 mentions that two years after the rape, Absalom takes revenge on Amnon, his half-brother, kills him, and then he goes into the region of Syria, Geshur, where he lays low for three years. So we have a five-year time period where these events happen. So obviously this is one of those very unpleasant chapters in the Bible, but it's here because this is the way it happened, and things like this do happen. Just a reminder, in David's household, there is so much wealth and there is so much power. He is a centralized king. He is over landmass the size of Southern California, and he controls everything. The army, the produce, the commerce, the slaves. He has subjugated the Edomites, the Moabites, and all these surrounding people, the Syrians, whereas the garrisons. He has a massive business empire, a massive business empire worth millions and millions of dollars, and even beyond that. It's, it, we don't even know compared to their currency and the value of the time. He's a very wealthy man. He has multiple wives and numerous sons. And where there's power and there's wealth, there's bound to be this kind of stuff going on, especially half-brothers and half-sisters. And so these events happen this way. God said the sword would not depart from his household, and this is the beginning of all these things. And it's, it's hard to see this with David because we really like David. We love David. David's a very special person to us in the Bible. Just today I finished the second book of Psalms. I've been reading the Psalms, as I've mentioned a few times, over the last month. And so I just finished the second book of Psalms. And the back part of that second book of Psalms, about 20 Psalms in a row of David, when he's older. And it's just kind of heartbreaking to read what he's saying in those Psalms when you see what's happening in his life right here. The one thing about David, though, he always did trust in the Lord. And we'll see that as we go forward in the rest of 2 Samuel. But in this story, we see that when the rape happened, it seems like that would have been the time for David to initiate some type of punitive damage on, on Amnon for what he did to Tamar, his daughter, and half-sister. But he didn't. And unfortunately, that's what happens. And we see this in human experience. When people have obvious sins in their life, and they're guilted by those sins and stumbled by their sins, they're so hesitant to deal with the same sins in the life of their employees or their own children. And so you, you get a cycle of impotence to deal with things and put things in order. And the longer you don't put things in order with children, the more likely they'll go bad, especially older children. But so often you'll see someone who's, who themselves had a great life with the Lord and then bad things came upon them with their own folly, and then they're just unable to put things in order and just to put their own house in order. And Sam and I were discussing this the other day, Pastor Sam and I, just like how... Eli the priest could not put his sons in order. And then Samuel the prophet, he could not put his sons in order. And then here's David, and he just can't, he just can't put it in order. And the irony of Saul is, is that in spite of Saul's failures, we know that his son Jonathan loved the Lord. But in the case of David, it's, it's, 
These are like first prince, third prince, and they're going to control millions of dollars of wealth, tons of power, and it's just too much lust to be had. And David, he could take any woman and make her his wife, which he did, contrary to the scriptures, but once he took the other man's wife, that's where all the trouble began. So why would we be surprised that his one son, Amnon, is going to take not just another man's wife, but he's going to take his half-sister and not take her as a wife because he couldn't, but just rape her and then hate her and give her credit. She doesn't hide it. So she has a public humiliation, but it's not her shame. Really, it's his. In fact, when she said to him in verse 12, no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. For where could I take my shame? And as for you, you'd be like one of the fools in Israel. And so it is. This line, this is the main application on this chapter. When Amnon crossed this line, he crossed a line that he could never come back from. When he raped his half-sister, he, something happened in his soul and in his conscience and in his, volition, his self-will. Something happened that he crossed a line that very few people cross. As much as men might lust for women or other men or women lust for men and vice versa, you cross a line of lusting after someone who's married whether it's a happy marriage or a bad marriage, that's the line of adultery, and it's never the same. But here you're crossing a line that's even incest. So this is a, a degeneration. And since the king did what he wanted for adultery, we're not surprised that prince number one did what he wanted in raping his sister. And he crossed a line that he was never going to come back from. And she spoke true, because there was shame brought to her by it, not to her doing, which is the tragedy of the story. But because she really is a victim of a violent crime, obviously a very violent crime. And he truly was a fool. And within a few years, he's dead and murdered in cold blood while he's drinking alcohol. That's his end. He died a fool. He died a drunken fool. He died a prince who was nowhere near the glory of his dad, the king. And he died a drunken fool with his folly. And he crossed this line. Again, I had a conversation with Sam about a week and a half ago about how people cross certain lines. And there's lines you cross that you're never the same. If you're a woman and you've had an abortion, you know you're never the same. I know lots of women who have had abortions, and they know it's never the same. You might you feel guilt, you feel remorse, whatever. You might be defensive of it. But in the end, you're never the same. When you take a baby out of your womb that God's entrusted to you protect, You'll never be the same when you have the abortion. And when you're the man and you pay for the abortion, which is what I did at one point in my life, you're never the same. I tell people $100 I paid for half the cost of an abortion when I was in my early 20s was the most costly $100 I ever spent in my life. It was without a doubt the most costly $100 that I ever spent. And you just never come back. We confronted a man that came to this church in the first year who served Serious time in prison. He was a career, he's just a career criminal. And he's a violent man. He was on the Megan's list, which is, you know, for raping people. And he was smiling in his photo. And uh, our former security guy, Steve Cedarquist, uh, pointed out to me from Big Calvary. He's like, hey, this guy's going to your church. And I, so I confronted him. And when I confronted him, like, why are you on this list? And he told me he's a part of this rape and all this stuff. 
And I said, and you're smiling? You're smiling in your mugshot? Yeah, because I'm forgiven. And you're in here wearing a muscle shirt, a tank top at church, and you're smiling? Guy's way bigger than me, too. I said, we will never take our eyes off you for a split second in this facility, ever. Didn't really have a biblical reason to tell him he couldn't be here. He said he was repentant. I just told him we will never, ever take our eyes off you. And that you're smiling from a mugshot where you destroyed a woman is despicable. Even if you're forgiven by grace, which is what I just taught on Saturday night. And he actually, when I confronted him, he chuckled. See, you cross lines and it sears your mind. He's a scary man and he's still out there. And he threatened to kill his wife, who threatened to kill him, and they brought that drama to innocent people in another healthy church. They took it out of this church, praise the Lord, in that first year. You cross lines. There's moments when you're, you're waiting the balance by the Lord and you're thinking something evil to do something evil. And once you cross that line, it's like Saul's spear. As soon as you pick up Saul's spear and throw it once, it might become comfortable. And that's why you should never pick up Saul's spear and throw it. Because before you know it, you're sleeping with that spear by your side every single night. And you're dying with that spear by your side, being killed by an Amalekite. So if there's one clear application in this chapter is don't cross those lines. Don't cross those lines. And if you cross those lines, retract, find forgiveness. I'll tell you this. I would never smirk over paying for an abortion. I'll tell you that right now. I would never, under any circumstance, think that's funny in any way, shape, or form. When I held my dead son in my arms, let me tell you, I knew very much how much that $100 cost me to pay for an abortion. Because like the Lord said to me, you cried for this son, but you didn't cry for the other one. Nobody's smirking. So don't cross the line so you don't have such great sorrow. And if you have crossed that line, don't ever think there's anything funny on the other side. There's nothing funny on the other side of crossing that line of great shame and folly and disgrace before the Lord. Chapter 14. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab said to Tekoa, sent to Tekoa, and brought from there a wise woman. So now we got Joab. <laughs> Joab, Joab, Joab. He is the mystery man in, the, in first and second Samuel. Samuel. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from this there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. It's all a lie. It's all a facade. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And now your maidservant has two sons. And the two fought with each other in the field. And there was, one, there was no one to part them, but one struck the other and killed them. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother, whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. 
Then King David said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, well, As the Lord lives, no, no, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And David said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled out to the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will not speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king, in discerning good and evil, and may the lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? <laughs> and the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand to the left. From anything that my lord the king has spoken, for your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant, to bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I've granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let me see his face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now, in all Israel, there was no one was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his cut off his hair, off his head. At the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. So to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So he named, he had a daughter named after his sister. Verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again a second time, he would not come. So he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab and said, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here, so I may send you to the king to say, Why, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to, to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there's iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and then the king, that is King David, kissed Absalom. So another lengthy chapter of historical text, this whole concocted story of Joab to bring an awareness to David of what's going on and get a response. There is one thing the woman uh, 
does say from Tekoa that gets our attention in, here in verse 14, she says, Yet God does not take away life, but he devises the means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. And this is a true statement with the gospel, right? Did you catch that when we read it? Do you want to catch that when we read that? Because this really is the heart of the gospel, because really we are all born sinners and we're all banished from the Lord. We are already banished. We're not, we don't lose something that we started with. We're born banished. We are all banished and exiled from the kingdom of God. But it's not the heart of God to keep us banished, but the heart of God is to save us through his son. Of course, the gospel message, Christ coming to us to reconcile us to the father. And so this woman in this encounter with King David, she's in character and put on quite a performance. Wouldn't you agree? It takes a lot of guts to go before the king and live out a lie like this. This is like, this is like, like I've said before, this is like telenovela. There's like a soap opera, Korean drama, K-drama, Chinese drama, like Russian drama, this is, this is like, because we're talking kings and princes and princesses and, and murder and rape and revenge and burning fields and generals with power. It's like, it's just the worst of the human behavior is what it is. So it's amazing this chapter, such a simple phrase comes up that God does not take away life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but the world is already condemned. He sent his son into the world that we might be saved through faith in him. And so there's a, a sort of a, shadow of the gospel here proclaimed by this woman and the mystery man Joab has put this thing in motion and we do find that Joab is he's such a mystery there's just so much about Joab just so hard to get he's such a prominent character in the life of David but he, he put this events in order to bring about change because obviously David was unhappy about Absalom being banished and not being reconciled, because uh, Absalom would be the next prince, most likely. Uh, Abigail's son, who's on the list of children, it would seem Abigail's son would have been prince number two. You know, we talked about Abigail. Her son would seem to have been prince number two, but in the list of sons of David, there's nothing more attributed to him other than that he's one of the sons, and he's never in the mix. So there's silence with him, the son of, of Abigail, which in some cases, I say it's like an umpire. The less you see an umpire in a baseball game, the better. Because when you notice the umpire, that means there's a call that's got everyone upset. That's kind of how that works. So there's neither good attribute to the son of Abigail nor evil attribute to him. He's not in these factors. Just Amnon and Absalom and the striving and the lust for the crown. Now, Absalom's mom is a Canaanite. She's not an Israelite, which presents something very interesting as we get now moving toward Absalom and his conspiracy against David from within Israel. Had Absalom stayed in Syria to the north, it's quite possible he would become a powerful king and actually led an army of Syrian Canaanite people against David. That possibly could have happened, but because he was in the royalty and most likely the number two prince moved up to number one prince after he killed the number one prince, Amnon, he doesn't even have to come from Syria. He can come from within, which is exactly what he's going to do. And on looking at David, one, one final thing about David that stands out to us is where Absalom says in the latter part of the chapter, verse 32, if there's iniquity in me, let, let him execute me. Absalom knew that his dad would have a hard time pronouncing judgment on him because his dad was as guilty as anyone's guilty. See, that's what's tough. And maybe you can relate to this. For me, when my parents got divorced at 16, I was so selfish. I'm confessing a lot of things tonight. 
Um, because it's an ugly chapter, I might as well share my ugly side. But I, in a good way for God's redemption. But I was so selfish. I never thought my parents would get divorced. That thought never crossed my mind growing up in my military family with my hardworking dad, my hardworking mom. And it happened so fast. But when my parents, when my mom told me that her and my dad were going to get divorced, it was right when I was seven weeks into my sophomore year of high school. I'd run away to Hawaii. I cashed in my college bonds, got on a PSA flight, and went to Hawaii. And I ran out of money, and I called my mom, and she flew me home. And when I got off the plane at San Diego Airport, that's when you could be at the tarmac, and you know you could go past that. And I got off the plane, and the first thing my mom said to me is, your father and I are getting divorced. It's the first thing she said to me when I got off that plane. I had not been to school for total of eight weeks of the first semester. I had a kidney infection. I was in the hospital when school started at the Camp Pendleton Base Hospital. The school knew I was in the hospital, but when I got out of the hospital after two weeks, the school thought I was still in the hospital. My parents thought I was going to school, so I had five weeks of playing hooky. For five weeks, I didn't go to school and just surfed. I know. It really happened, though. Then I knew it was all going to come crashing down on me with the nine-week you know, mid-semester report cards, and that's where I cashed in. I stole my debt, my college bonds in my name. When you could do this, I went to the bank, a teenager, to the bank. This is the 70s when I smoked on airplanes. Let the reader understand. And I went to the bank and cashed these bonds. My friend took me to San Diego Airport. I got on a PSA flight and flew to Hawaii with my surfboard. I was, you know, the 70s is strange. Like, we'll never be there again, so just as well. But when my mom said that they were getting divorced, I had this sinister thought in my mind, good for me. Good for me because now I can surf whenever I want to surf. Now I can smoke pot whenever I want to smoke pot. Now I can go to continuation high school. Now my dad, who's been restrained in my life, let me tell you, there's nothing like a military belt to restrain a rebellious son. My dad was never angry when he brought about punishment, but he was firm. And I knew what a Marine Corps belt felt like when I was on my backside. And, of course, by that time, my dad wasn't spanking me, but... He had lost his, he had, you know, dad moved out. And I thought, I can get away with anything and everything now. And until I had attempted suicide 10 years later, I thought I could get away with anything and everything. But no one really gets away with anything and everything, do we? But we, are, we can be selfish when we realize, oh, this is my opportunity. Our flesh loves an opportunity to rise up and be unrestrained to do evil. All the evil in our nation right now that loves the removal of the boundaries and the borders, uh, moral borders, moral boundaries, real borders, real boundaries, and the removal of all these things. And people who live for their flesh, they love it. That's the unfortunate thing here. David had been defeated, and he felt like he had no basis by which to really deal with things. Therefore, Absalom knew, what's my dad going to do? Is dad going to look me in the eyes when he's talking about me avenging my sister? How can my dad give me a hard time for killing Ammon when he killed Uriah? You see, adult children get smart, right? You know that? You, people with adult, you know, your, your adult kids, they can, get pretty, they can get pretty shrewd. What a sad story. So the moral of the story is just because everyone else is lowering their standards, don't let it lower yours. And even from your own failures might make you feel inadequate and unqualified to, to do the right thing. You still need to do the right thing. Using the abortion, for example, 
I've voted pro-life in every election ever since that costly $100. That's the best I can do. I've shared my testimony with teenagers at different times. I've ministered to women who have had abortions and lost multiple children after having abortions. I just do the best I can do. But I'm willing to say this is going to always be wrong. And I don't need somebody to give me a point zero 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 one percent thing that can happen that somehow makes uh, abortion seem justified. It'll never be justified. And I don't need to be a woman to say it either. And I can't give you all the best arguments, but I know my son Luke can. So if anyone thinks they have an argument here to justify abortion, you can call my son Luke and see how that goes for you. Because that kid's got the mind of the Lord, and I've never heard anyone defend pro-life and the right of every life in the womb more clearly, more intelligently, and more biblically, and more spirit-filled than my son, Luke. Our failures cannot keep us from speaking the truth. Because you see what I say, like, do as we do, not as, like, you know, they're saying, like, do as we do, but do as we say, but not as we do, and we feel disqualified, but we can't let that disqualify us. Just because you commit adultery doesn't mean you can't speak out and confront someone who's about to commit adultery. You, the, truth, the truth is always the truth. And life is always in obedience to the Lord, and death is always in sin against the Lord. So even a smart like Absalom, the most good-looking man in all Israel, came there, what's my dad going to say? Dad's all, look at dad, dad's all like 50 now. Dad looks like he's 60. Dad aged a lot in the last seven years. Yeah, you think? Amnon raped Tamar. You killed Amnon. That'll cause your dad to age when he's in his 50s. What's he going to say to me? Yeah, dad's not going to say anything. See how it works? But what if in these two chapters, David had said something? What if David could have got past his own shortcomings and shortfallings and his inadequacies and his feeling unqualified to confront these things? But they still need to be confronted, especially as a king. With princes, it's not just the house of David. It's not like, oh, the Baran family or your family. It's the man in charge of all the nation of Israel, God's people of covenant. The pastor has to deal with his family. The king of Israel has to deal with his family. Not because he feels qualified or unqualified, but because there's so much more at stake than just you and your household. You're leading an entire nation. And so even for us in our own household, it's always going to be the right thing to do the right thing. And whether our life is matched up, because all of us fall short of the truth. So at any given time when we're addressing something with somebody to exhort them or help them do what's right and true, we're going to fall short. At any given time, we're going to fall short of the perfection meter. So if you're confronting someone, a coworker, like, well, look at you. Look what you did back five years ago when you did that. You're like, listen, if our only basis to speak truth to a world in darkness is based upon our perfection, none of us are going to speak up. So we need to speak the truth. We need to speak the truth regardless of personal failures. And we need to do the right thing in doing things in our own house regardless of personal, moral, spiritual failures. Because nothing good is going to come from enabling sin to land softly in the short term for a crushing blow in the long term. And had David punitively punished Amnon for what he did to Tamar, maybe Absalom wouldn't have taken 
vigilantism into his own hands. And maybe he wouldn't be so full of himself and so arrogant and defiant of his dad and so disrespectful of his dad in this point of the story. Chapter 15. After this had happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. See, this is what happens when you don't spank your children. This is what happens when you don't spank your children and teach them to have a heart for the Lord like you have a heart for the Lord, especially the one that's half a Canaanite. They provide himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before them. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone had a lawsuit, they came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call them and say, what city are you from? And he would say, oh, your servants from such and such tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, oh, look, 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 your case is good and right. But there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made a judge in the land. And everyone who had any suit or cause could come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass, after four years, that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay pay the vow which I have made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Gersha. Uh, Gesher in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Man, when your conscience is seared, it's seared. That is so evil. Verse 8 is so evil. Verse 9. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem. They went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Hithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from Gila, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now, a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword." And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all of his household after him, but the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all of his servants passed before him, and all the, the Cherethites, all the Peleothites, and all the Gittites, six hundred men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, since I go not knowing where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king, said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. And then Ittai the Gittite and all of his men and all the little ones who were with him, they crossed over. And the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And they set down the ark of God, and Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, then here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to me. 
The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer, a prophet? Return to the city in peace uh, and your two sons with you, Ahamaziah, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. And then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was with your father's servants previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the council of Hithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abathar the priests with you there? Therefore, O be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abathar the priests, indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahamaziah, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son, And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came in to Jerusalem. So the treason has reached its pinnacle right here. The great King David, in full humiliation, is leaving the city of the king, the city of David. He's leaving defeated, not by a Moabite, not by a Syrian or an Edomite or an Amalekite. He's been defeated by his own moral failures running a full course against him, and he's been defeated by a son that he loves dearly. Who can even fully understand the depth of David's grief and sorrow on this day? But what a difficult and dark day it is. In fact, probably the darkest day. Because as hard as it was to lose the child with Bathsheba, for he fasted and mourned for seven days and the baby passed. And as tragic as it would have been for to hear of Tamar, just like, just because it said he was really angry. Remember, we read he was really angry when he heard that Tamar was raped. And then hear that Absalom killed Amnon and be like, he had to think in the middle of the night like Amnon brought it on himself. He had to hear the words of the prophet Nathan saying, the sword will not depart from your house. He had to hear his own words saying when Uriah was killed, the sword devours one and devours another. So he would have heard it was all there. And we, you people that are older, you know how easy it is when you're 50 or 60 laying in bed to think of all the things that could have been, should have been, and would have been, and the failures that you made. And they condemn you. And the devil molds them and shapes them and brands them and frames them a certain way to just bring total despair. Because there's no human being that gets to 60 and doesn't have a trail of sin and failure in their resume, even the best of them. What a dark day. Jesus wept on the Mount of Olives, right? The one greater than David. He wept over his rejection of the Mount of Olives. He came to the city from this direction, and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, like King David. And then within a week, they rejected him, saying, crucify, crucify. There are some similarities here, for sure. David the king, fully humiliated, barefoot, 
weeping with his head covered. That, in his own way, that's a lot like Jesus on the cross. The difference being, though, David is facing consequences of his sin and the effects of other people's sins upon him on full public humiliation display. Jesus, barefoot and with his head covered with the crown of thorns, is also on full public display humiliation, but God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So all of our sins are put on Jesus on the cross, full humiliation in the same city in a similar way, public humiliation, on the cross, nothing filtering it, nothing giving it a soft landing for our sins. It's very comforting to know that while David has public humiliation for his sin, because the Lord even said, David did this in secret, his concubines are going to be raped by Absalom in the midday sun in the tent, which comes up in the next, next week. But the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus on the cross takes all of our public humiliation. Now, we might have public humiliation for various reasons because we're just sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. But really, the weight of our sin, this is the glorious gospel and amazing grace. The weight of our sin and the humiliation of our sin, and we even say the nakedness of our sin, is put upon Jesus and the crown of thorns. See, when you're younger and you got it all figured out, you might be quick to condemn other people and make quick judgments and point out other people's sins. Young people tend to do that, especially young people in ministry. Or point out things that they just disagree with when they think they got it figured out. I've been that person, so I know. But you know, when you get older, you realize, uh, you know, if you're really smart after a while, you just start dropping your stones and walking away. Because you realize in the measure you judge of others, in the measure you condemn, it'll be you will be judged and you'll be condemned. And, you know, a, a sign of maturity of a, of a truly humble person, someone who's been humbled by their sin, is the person barefoot weeping, saying, you know what? If the Lord says I'm good, I'm good. If the Lord says I'm done, I'm done. That's a person who knows the heart of God. It's like John the Baptist said, a man or a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from the Lord. And in this situation, as this humiliation is unfolding for David and his sins, and there's no hiding it, years later, it's all out in the open, everything. It's just, oh, what a horrible day it is. The whole city is weeping. Did you catch that? The whole city is weeping. They're losing a great king and being replaced by the rebel son that the next generation loves and thinks is so handsome and so hot. But the older people realize what a dark, dreadful day it is, and they are weeping. And the text tells us that. But in the midst of this, we see David's great faith. Because there are people that will want to humiliate us, and they'll want to point out our shortcomings and publicly display them. Just be very careful you don't do that to other people. Because inevitably... Not that we're covering things up, but you just got to be really careful. And we got to check our hearts because, as we used to say in the surf world before I was even saved, what goes around comes around, bro. And that's the way the universe works, like gravity. And sowing and reaping and judging and condemning works that way. And we'll get Shimei in the next chapter. And we'll get another lesson from David in that next chapter But where David says here in verse 25, verse 26, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, 
I find favor. In other words, look, I got nowhere to hide. He said in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go? From the top of the mountain to the deepest valley to the, to the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean? There's nowhere to go. I can't go anywhere from his, from his spirit. So if the Lord says, if I find favor in his eyes as a sinner, as a broken man on a dark day, if I find favor in his eyes, I find favor in his eyes, and he'll show me, and he'll bring me back, and he'll bring me to this dwelling place, and I'll again be restored as king. If that's what he has for me, that's what he has for me. But alas, if he says, I take no delight in you, here I am. Let him do what seems good. We're going to see this with David later on when he is asked choices of punishment. He goes, I'm a, I'll, take, I'll take three days of punishment from the Lord because uh, he's merciful. Men are not merciful. I'll take the Lord. Even in total defeat, even in public humiliation, David is still trusting in the Lord. In some of his psalms, he talks about how people come against him and he brought it on himself. But he's still trusting in the Lord. We can praise the Lord on the mountaintop and we can trust the Lord in a deep valley. But this, when you get sin mingled in and the consequences of sin, it's harder. Because you feel like there's just there's no grace that can carry you there. But, but David's trusting in the Lord. I actually believe this, these verses, 25 and 26, show us so much about the man who has a heart for God when he just says, the Lord's in control. It's his universe. You know, there's 8 billion people on this planet. And we got all the new photos from this eye in the sky of new solar systems and galaxies that are amazing. God of a trillion galaxies, with a trillion stars in those galaxies. He sent his son to die for us and paid the price for our sins. So even in our failures, may we find favor and whatever he chooses to take us forward with, praise the Lord. Whatever it's cost us, praise the Lord. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken. He's not done with us. There's a future and a hope in Jesus' name.